0: Toppled buildings and just crushed and I'm not sure if it's safe to report from my vantage point. I, I really need to leave. So the fences inform me that the surrounding areas are, are in ruin. I, I see some people running now. And the opinion of this reporter, if this nation, or in fact the world, ever needed heroes, that time is now. That time is now.
1: episode of Aquaman and Firestorm, the Fire and Water Podcast. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rob Kelly. And of course, normally I am joined by my regular co-host, Deer, D-Mobile Shag. But he is off searching for One-Eyed Willie's treasure right now. So I'm here to present a very special interview, namely my talk with writer Sholly Fish. Uh, Sholly Fish is one of the favorite creators across the Fire and Water Podcast Network. He's written for a number of fantastic series like DC Super Friends, Teen Titans Go!, Batman Brave and the Bold, and Scooby-Doo team-up, which of course was a series that Shag and I devoted a whole episode of the Fire and Water podcast to a couple of months back. Uh, We just love it that much. And so Shag and I have been uh, friends for a couple of years, and he has a a new exciting project that he wanted to talk about, so I thought it was a perfect time to do a career interview uh, with Shag. He did appear on an episode of my Treasury Cash show a few years ago, but uh, we just talked about a very particular piece of uh, his comics history, but here uh, we're going to be doing a full-length interview talking about his career, how he got into comics, some of his favorite stories. It's a really great talk, and I know you're going to love hearing from Shali, but before we get to that, we have to thank our sponsor. This episode of the Fire & Water Podcast Network is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 45% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. And two of the deals you can find on InStockTrades.com com right now are Scooby-Doo Team-Up Volume 1 which collects the first 8 issues of that beloved series. It features uh, Scooby teaming up with Batman, Robin, Wonder Woman, the Teen Titans, and even Man-Bat. That's exciting. The artist is, of course, Dario Bruziella. The normal price is $12.99. In-stock trade's price is $7.53. You save 42%. It's a great series. We all love it here on the network, so you should absolutely pick it up. And then the other book I wanted to mention is Mr. Peabody and Sherman. I didn't even know there was a Mr. Peabody and Sherman comic. Uh, it's from IDW. Mr. Peabody and Sherman are my second favorite characters from the The Bullwinkle Show, right after Fractured Fairy Tales. And this book looks super, super charming. It's really, really sweet. The normal price is $17.99. In Stock Trades' price is $7.19. You save 60%, 60% off of this book. So pick those two books by our guest Sholly Fish up. And so for these and all the other trade paperback needs, visit InStockTrades.com and we thank them for their support. And of course, we also have to thank our Patreon supporters. So if you are enjoying the Fire and Water Podcast Network, the best way to support the show is by visiting Patreon dot com slash fw podcast consider supporting the fire and water podcast network at certain sponsorship tiers you'll get mentioned on your favorite fire and water show just like these folks who chose to support the Aquaman and Firestorm podcast so our thanks to Jason Pope Jay Campbell Robert Lewis Kevin Culp Adam Ackerman David Gutierrez and Gord Tolton again visit our patreon at patreon.com slash fw podcast so as I typically do with interviews, I like to give our guests the final word. So I'm going to be doing all our big sign-offs here before we can get to our talk uh, with Sholly. So, of course, you can find the Final Order Podcast Network over on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter at FWPodcast. So let's get right to it. We're going to run some podcast promos. And when I come back, we're going to feature my talk with Sholly Fish. Stay tuned.
0: It's midnight,
1: the podcasting hour. Never mind. The Justice League wouldn't help him, so Batman formed a new team. These people of power are all looking for something, be it their past, or a purpose, or simply somewhere to fit in. These are the heroes for a troubled age. They are the Outsiders. We are the Outsiders.
0: Covering Mike W. Barr's 1983 series from the very beginning as they face villains no other team can,
1: like Agent Orange, the Force of July, and the Nuclear Family. <laughs> Puns.
0: This is The Outcasters, a Batman and the Outsiders podcast. Look for us with The Huntress podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Or listen at our website, TheHuntressPodcast.com, and follow us on Twitter at BatOutcasters. We are the Outcasters, because to live outside the law, you must be honest. We are the Outcasters!
1: And we're back, and as promised, I am joined by one of the Fire & Water Podcast Network's favorite writers, Sholly Fish. Hi, Sholly. Hi, how are you? I am doing great. I am so thrilled to finally be doing this with you. You and I have been kind of talking. You've been on one of my shows before. You were on Treasure Cast a couple of years ago. But yep. I've always wanted to do a long form interview with you because, as I just said, you have written some of the most favorite comics of the network. We have waxed your car repeatedly uh, across <laughs> other episodes, or your Mystery Machine, if I if I want to be precise. And so I'm just really happy that that we're going to get to talk to you about your whole career as opposed to just like one little bits, you know, bits and pieces of it. So again, I'm just super excited uh, for you to be for you to be joining us here. So let's let's just jump right in. Let's do the secret origin of Shally Fish. So. How did you? I, let's before you even get, became a writer. Let's talk about what did you read as a kid? What were your favorite comics books as a, as a kid? What started you on this path?
0: Okay, so oh, actually, sorry about the creaky chair, but um, so when I was a kid, um, I was exactly the right age for the Adam West Batman TV show, um, <laughs> and to get caught up in the incredible wave of bat mania that just swept the country at that time. So, I first discovered this stuff on TV through that. Um the first comic book I bought, which I actually still own, uh was Justice League of America number 61. Um okay. not a great issue, but it did get me started. Um <laughs> and uh and then I was off and running. Uh, you know, so as a kid <clears throat> I was really more of a DC kid than a Marvel kid because at that point, you know, I had an allowance that was a quarter a week and um, all the distribution was through newsstands and Marvel stories were all continued. And so you could never be sure you were going to get the next issue. <laughs> uh, so I was, you know, I was buying uh, Batman and Justice League and Teen Titans and then slowly crept into Marvel um through spider-man and actually um the more unusual choice but to me was the height of humor when i was like six years old was not brand s ah uh, yes a parody comic um which at the time i didn't realize how much of a debt it owed to the harvey kurtzman mad comics but um i just thought that was brilliant so i was reading all of that stuff um and those those quickly became favorites and then you know and as i got older than branched out into more stuff as my allowance expanded to, you know, 50 cents or 75 cents. (laughs) And, you know, and then discovered some of the more offbeat superheroes like um, Plastic Man or Captain Marvel or things like that. And, um, you know, and that was a whole new kind of love of this stuff. So it just kind of went from
1: there and lasted I'm assuming that, like a lot of us, you then eventually started graduating into, you know, reading proper books and stuff like that? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Oh,
0: I read proper books at the same time. Oh, you
1: that. did? Okay.
0: <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> no, I was, I, I was an early reader and I was, an, you know, an avid reader. So I was reading real books from, you know, as soon as I could read. Uh, and so my parents never minded me reading the comics because it wasn't getting in the way of the other stuff. Right, right maybe about midway through high school when they decided I should be spending more time on my homework. But other than that, <laughs>
1: <laughs> but mom, the not brand Eck this month is really good. Look at this Marie Severin artwork. You're like, okay. Right. Yeah. So I mean, how did you start deciding to wanting to write?
0: So I started, well, I was also an early writer. So I started writing almost as soon as I started reading. And, um, I still have, thanks to my mother, never throwing them out. Um, uh, one or two of the comics that I made when I was like five, six years old. Oh, wow. Um, And, uh, you know, I'm pleased to say that not only have I gotten somewhat better since then, but, um, (laughs) I now know how to spell properly the difference between off and oof. (laughs) Um, which apparently was a big problem for me at the time, near as I can tell. Um, but, uh, my parents always really encouraged me not to just read but to create my own stories um, and so i was writing prose stories um either just you know longhand or on a typewriter i was writing comics you know and drawing them uh, with you know starting with stick figures and kind of working my way up from there although never to a point where anybody else would ever want to buy any of them um and then by the time by the time I was in my mid-teens, I suppose, um, I started submitting stories to um, to companies, uh, to comic book companies, or occasionally a prose story to a magazine. None of them ever got bought, but I, uh, I did manage to accumulate a nice collection of rejection slips um, <laughs> and just kept doing that until eventually I had the chance to do it for real.
1: So, I mean, your first your first credit is Marvel Tales, starring Spider-Man number one ninety-eight. That's is that your first professional sales in a comic book?
0: Sorta of, kinda. Um, so, that is my first published comic book story. Um, I actually got started a couple of years before that. Uh, that was, I think, eighty-six, um, and in eighty-four two things happened. One was um, I finished college a semester early and uh, I was going to be going to grad school for psychology. Um, but I had six months off in between. So I had to get a job. So I was working for this minuscule publishing company for a few months. Um, so small that they were just coming out with their third book at the time. And um, a friend of mine, uh, meanwhile, a few months later, was graduating. And so he was leaving his uh, menial office job at Marvel to go get a real job with uh, the Wall Street Journal. And so I said, wait, 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 tell him you know somebody. And so I did this menial file clerk job at Marvel for a few months in their international sales department. And through that, I got to be friends with Sandy Hausler, who at that time was the assistant editor on Marvel Age, their uh, in-house promotional magazine that kind of told you what was coming out and why. But all that. Uh, Sandy actually also later became my roommate for a few years, so it's been a very profitable friendship, actually. <laughs> um, but Sandy introduced me to Jim Salakrip, who was editing Marvel Age, and got him to see that I could put a couple sentences together. And so uh I started writing for Marvel Age and uh through that I would uh, be talking to the editors and you know to find out stuff for the articles and as a result I would find out when people were looking for stories for things and that's what led to my eventually writing stories at Marvel um now simultaneous with that uh DC had their new talent program at the time um, where they were soliciting stories from unknowns and uh, publishing them in a comic that had different names at different times. It was new talent showcase. It was talent showcase and it became something like Elvira's house, of mystery or something. <laughs> um, and right about the same time as my first published Marvel age article, I sold a story to the new talent program Um which was, you know, really kind of cool because I got this big, thick envelope in the mail and assumed it was I'm sending back the script with a rejection slip since that's what I was used to. <clears throat> and instead, I found there was a contract in it. Hey! Um, which, yeah. <laughs> so I sold that story, but it never actually got published because the, um, the comic got canceled before it actually ever saw the light of day. <laughs> uh, so... I had actually been in some sense of the word, you know, a comics pro, um, for a couple of years before that Spider-Man story came out, but that was the one that, you know, was, was, was actually in print with my name on it. Right. Right. comic book, um, for the first time. Um, and there's actually a pretty funny story behind that. Um, which is, uh, so when, when I did that story, uh, Marvel tales was reprinting stories at that point. It was Spider-Man stories from Marvel team up. And, um, the problem that they had was that the Marvel team up stories were too short for the issue. So they needed new backup stories, um, to fill out the issue. Uh, and so I was friends with uh, the assistant editor on the book who was, um, uh, Adam Blaustein, who uh, was looking for stories. And so I pitched him some story ideas, never thinking that they would let me use anybody of any, you know, merit. They wouldn't let me use Spider-Man. <laughs> so, you know, so I was pitching them stories for like Ant-Man and Jessica <laughs> Tritt, like that. And Adam, you know, looked at the stories. He said, well, these are okay, but you know, we're not going to do stories with these guys. So, I'll tell you what, if you can give me a story with Spider-Man fighting the thing, not only will I put it in the comic, but I will have James Fry draw it. And James Fry was, well, still is a very talented artist who at the time was doing art corrections to Marvel bullpen and was like the other half of my brain and continues to be this till this day, um, And so I said, oh, wow, you know, Spider-Man thing, work with James. Wow, yeah, that sounds great. So I wrote the story. And James and I, um, that summer, right around that time, were going on vacation together to California. Uh, It was the first time we actually went away together. But we we used to travel together a lot, um, in the days before we were each married and had families and all that. So we went to L.A. and... We went, you know, of course, if you go to L.A., what's the first thing you do? Well, you know, if you're us, the first thing you do before you go to Disneyland and before you go to Hollywood Boulevard and before you do any of that stuff, you go to Marvel Productions, which, you know, was their animation studio at the time. And you go to try to, you know, force your way in to go meet Stan Lee. <laughs> so, so we went to Marvel Productions. Um in our naivete, completely, you know, not announcing ourselves or giving them any advance warning. And they were very nice about it um, and gave us a whole tour of the place, but it was Stan's day off. So So they said, come back tomorrow and you can meet Stan. So we said, okay. So we we go back to our hotel, you know, next day, we're back at Marvel Productions. We go, we meet Stan Lee, who is exactly the way you think he is. (laughs) Um, and James shows him some pages of the story and all of that, which is all cool. Now, the thing is, the thing is, the editor of the series, um, who I won't mention by name because I actually like him and he's, uh, you know, quite a talented guy in his own right, but he had a reputation for rewriting everybody's stories. And that's what he did to my story. And he just completely rewrote the whole thing. And James and I didn't like it nearly as much as the original, but you know, it was our first story and we weren't really going to argue and whatever. So, you know, I, so I may, I rewrote it the way he wanted it. James drew it the way he wanted it. And that's what we had brought to stand. So we get back to the hotel. Just completely blissed out after meeting Stanley and, you know, not even caring about the rest of our vacation and ready to go home at any time at this point. <laughs> and we're lying on our beds, just sort of grinning. And at some point, I don't remember which of us realized at first, but one of us says to the other, where are the pages? And it turned out that we were so blissed out after meeting Stan Lee that James had left the envelope with the pages on the roof of the car. (laughs) So we drove back to where we were pretty sure this had happened. And we started walking up and down, looking in the gutter, and we start to find pages. Pages with tire tracks. Pages with Stones embedded in them. Uh, you know, pages up and down the gutter. And so now we go back to the hotel really depressed. <laughs> oh, man. Forgetting all the bliss and all that. And so we sit there for a little while, and James says, okay, you know, got to own up to this and call New York and let them know that the story's going to be late because I have to redraw it. So he calls up, and he asks for the editor to discover that the editor no longer works there. <laughs> um because in the time that we that we were gone he left so we found out who the editor was who was taking over and who was also a friend of ours and hung up the phone in shock so we'd now gone from bliss to depression to shock <laughs> <laughs> this is a roller coaster of emotions <laughs> it was quite a day and so we kind of look at each other and after a while Because we tend to do this, we both had the same thought at the same time, which was, so do we still have to do his version of the story? Ah. So James called up the new editor, (laughs) explained the situation, explained that the pages had been run over, explained that, you know, we would really rather write and draw the original version. Um, And the editor said, okay. So all of this turned out to be a blessing in disguise. (laughs) um, apart from the fact that, you know, we met Stan. And um, so he we redid the story. He redrew it the way that it was, you know, as God meant it to be. And that's the story that actually got published. Um, the, the equally amusing postscript to the story is that a few months later when the story came out, um, I went over to Marvel to pick up copies, and James, of course, was there because he was working in the bullpen, and he had gotten his check for the story, and so we went downstairs to the bank uh, that was in the same building to cash his check, and while we were waiting online with, you know, so he could cash his check, and we're flipping through the pages and enjoying the fact that we're in print and all of that, who should get online behind us? but the original editor. Dear Lord. <laughs> and he says, oh, what you got? <laughs> and we said, oh, well, um, it's this story we did. <laughs> he said, oh, cool. Let me see it. And he goes, um, oh, okay. And he, he, you know, and he flips through the story. He starts laughing. He says, oh, this is great. This is so funny. <laughs> he had no memory whatsoever of the fact that he had completely rewritten it and we didn't do his story, which was great. (laughs) So everybody stayed friends. The story got published the way we wanted it to. And we all lived happily ever after. But that my was my first God. comic book story.
1: <laughs> my Lord. Oh, man. Once we're done this interview, I'm off to eBay to buy Marvel Tales number 198. That's just the story behind all that is fantastic. Wow. Yeah. It's,
0: it, it's not the most brilliant story I ever wrote, but it's a fun story. And James actually drew us and my sister into the story, which is also kind of nice.
1: He must have. real. I mean, I, obviously, you having to rewrite the story is work, but James having to redraw all the pages is a ton of work.
0: Yes, it is. Yes, oh,
1: it is. Lord. Thank God you weren't the one that left the pages on top of the roof. Because, like, <laughs> I mean, man, it really would have been awkward.
0: Yeah, believe me, I'm very glad of that.
1: <laughs> oh, my. Wow.
0: Okay. Well, um, I don't.
1: Okay. Uh, <laughs> I imagine if you have stories about, all... you have a story of that uh that, uh, that that roller coaster of emotions compared to some of the with some of the others we're going to talk about, but wow, that is a yeah. a hell of a start, Charlie. Um,
0: so, we could just kind of stop here, actually.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Thanks everybody for listening. Go to <laughs> farmworkerpodcast Uh So okay. So I was looking through your list of credits, um, and you know, obviously, pretty early on, you showed a facility for humor or kind of a lighter touch because you've got like credits on the What The book, which was, you know, Marvel's uh, humor book, the, their version of Not Eck in the, in the 80s. Um, mm-hmm. You've got a credit on Static. There's some holiday special stuff. She, sensational She-Hulk. But something that jumped out at me was uh, four issues of Clive Barker's Hellraiser.
0: What the hell is that about? Uh, I am nothing if not diverse. Um, so, yeah. No, I, re- I wrote four Hellraiser stories. Um, the... I mean, in part, you know, it was early in my career and I would have written anything that people would have asked me to. But but I actually, I liked doing those stories, actually, um, because I kind of like doing a variety of stuff. It keeps me from getting bored. But with Hellraiser, so again, you know, thanks to Marvel Age, I knew all the editors and I was friendly with uh, Dan Chichester, who was the editor on Hellraiser. And so when they were starting it up, and it was an anthology book, I asked if I could pitch him a story, and he said, sure. Um, And so I pitched him this Hellraiser story set in the Old West with, you know, a nice little twist ending to it. And I basically sat in his office and pitched him the story, and he, you know, when I got to the twist, he laughed out loud, and he said, oh, that's great, go ahead, yeah, write that story, and... And wound up having Dan Spiegel draw it, which was great because I always loved Dan Spiegel's work. Oh, yeah, I love him. Um, And in fact, yeah, the splash page of it is hanging uh, on the wall of my office right behind me right now.
1: Oh, that's fantastic. Um,
0: Yeah. So my Hellraiser stories tended to be a lot less gory than most of people's Hellraiser stories. (laughs) Um, And as a result, you know, I had at least one person at Marvel... Comment to me that you know I had written an actual story <laughs> um but um uh, but I have to say, I mean the person who I thought was the best writer on Hellraiser um was Dwayne McDuffie, who did some a couple of really brilliant stories, one in particular that I loved um but yeah, you know it was it was fun it was uh, it was work it was fine <laughs> um. I and think a lot of uh, people would be a lot of people would be shocked that
1: there was a Hellraiser comic from Marvel. That just seems like really Marvel did
0: Hellraiser. Marvel did Hellraiser and a magazine of a Nightmare on Elm Street.
1: I had those. I remember those. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That that one. Well, Steve Gerber wrote that one, and so that one was really over the top, gory. Um, you know, because it was Nightmare on Elm Street, and it was Steve Gerber. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. And uh, there was a certain higher up at Marvel who was not happy with the level of it all and that's why my understanding is that it was cancelled after two issues. Uh um, yeah, I think so. Yeah,
1: I think which, I think I have which the actually, first
0: one, yeah, which actually led directly to my favorite of Dwayne's Hellraiser stories because um Dwayne at that time was in this you know, later he became one of the founders of Milestone and story right. editor for the Justice League cartoons and all that. But in those days, he was an assistant editor at Marvel, and and we were friends, and um, I used to hang out in his office when I would be there, and we'd chat. And one day, I was sitting in his office, and we were chatting about whatever it was we were chatting about, and Dan Chichester came in the office really pretty upset because he had just had the meeting. Where Nightmare on Elm Street was canceled. And Dan's position, understandably, was, you know, if you're going to publish Nightmare on Elm Street, you publish Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, otherwise you don't call it that. And he said to Dwayne, you know, if you wanted to write a whatever was six page story for Hellraiser about censorship, that would be really good. <laughs> And Dwayne wrote this brilliant story about a writer in hell who writes this story that's so perfect that it comes to life as a human baby. (laughs) And he brings it to his editor, who then says, oh, yeah, this is pretty good, but I think we could improve it a little bit and, like, rips off an arm and does it. And the writer writer says, oh, you know, I don't know. Bilateral symmetry was one of my themes. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, and it just goes from there. Uh, and it's a brilliant, brilliant story, but it's much, much funnier if you actually know what it's about.
1: <laughs> wow. Oh, my goodness. Oh There's so much drama in comic yeah. books. Who would have guessed? So uh, <laughs> so I noticed that uh, there is like a gap in your comic writing career by a couple of years. And that always surprised me when I see stuff like it. Because when I understand of comics careers, it's like you have to kind of – you know, be in people's minds all the time. So, how, I mean, what right. what was the reasoning for that, and how did you end up getting back in?
0: Uh, so it was a very simple reason for it, which is I got a job. Um, so I started, when I started writing comics, um, I was in grad school. You know, I was going for a PhD in developmental psych, which I eventually got. Um, and simultaneously, I was going to grad school, I was writing comics at night, and a couple days a week, I was uh, working at the Children's Television Workshop, um, oh, wow. where they do, you know, and and the the folks at the workshop had offered me a full time job a couple times, but I never took it because I knew that if I took it, I would never finish my dissertation. Um, so finally, I got far enough along uh, with my dissertation research that I had everything done except the actual writing of it. And I said to them, okay, now I can take a full-time job. So, you know, and uh, and so I'll come aboard full-time. Now, what that meant for the comics was when I was working five days a week, I could no longer go into the office at Marvel. Um, so I was continuing to write stuff. I mean, this was pre-internet, really. So this, you know, by facts, I was doing it. But the problem is when you're not in the office – there was enough turnover that after a couple of years of that, I didn't know any of the editors anymore. Mm-hmm. So I kind of fell out of Marvel. And I sort of kept my hand in a little bit with odds and ends of stuff. Um, I did a couple of comic series for uh, a couple of the magazines that the workshop published. Um, I did some prose stories about Marvel characters for um, short story anthologies that Byron Price um uh, Publishing was putting out because they actually had uh, a couple of editors there that I knew—one from Marvel and one was an old college friend of mine. Um, but I fell out of comics, and uh, it wasn't until a few years later that um, that I wound up at DC, um, which again is a whole other story, which I can go into if you want me to take. Oh, absolutely! Out. I mean,
1: now that you've told me that you were at CTV, uh, I, I could see how that obviously dovetails into your career at DC because you immediately start picking up and writing all of the Hanna-Barbera stuff. So, I mean, it makes right. total sense now.
0: Right. Exactly. So actually the first thing I did for DC was, was a year or two before that. Um, I did a, a story with two facing commissioner Gordon teaming up, uh, in an anthology thing that they had called ba- Batman Chronicles. Right. Uh, Double Jack. Right. Which happened because, um, the editor of that actually had been a student at Boston university when my wife worked in the hill all there. <laughs> um, and so uh, I met him through her and wound up doing a story for that. But the way I got into DC for real, DC had started doing these cartoon network books. Right. And um, I looked at this and I said, well, I've written comics for about 10 years I've actually written a couple of TV scripts for the Cartoon Network. Seems like I'm a good fit for that. (laughs) So I called up the editor, called, and explained who I was, you know, Children's Television Workshop, Cartoon Network, you know, all that, Marvel. And she said, okay, you know, send me some samples and, and some pitches for stories, and I did. But of course, you know unsolicited submissions is never the first priority for an editor mm-hmm. rightly so rightly so because you know they have jobs to do and they have to get their books out so months went by and I didn't hear anything And you know so every maybe two three months or so I would call up just very friendly and say hi just checking in want to see if you had a chance to look at it and you know of course she had not so this went on for about a year and then I get a call from her saying, "Oh my God, I finally got to read through your stuff. This stuff is great. It's better than a lot of the stuff we're publishing." But I'm leaving DC next week, so I'm going to hand your stuff over to the editor who's taking over, and you know tell them that they should really look at it. And so the whole process started again. Every couple months, calling up, "Hi, just checking." <laughs> it took i think about 2 years and three or four editors um before joan helty finally you know said ah, all right try it <laughs> and and let me uh write some stories for the cartoon network books and that then led to doing you know bigger things like Scooby-Doo and Looney Tunes and whatever. Right. And um, right. Everything just sort of snowballed from there. But, um, you know, it was a while coming. So. Yeah. Oh, my
1: God. You keep, you catch these editors just as so they're headed out the door. Uh, <laughs> so yeah. uh, I'm curious about what it was like writing all of those Hanna-Barbera slash cartoon network books right at the time where DC was, you know, so dominated by superheroes. And, and the reason I even asked that – is because many, many years ago at the San Diego Comic-Con, I saw a talk by Kyle Baker. And he told us, and and I I remember that I saw this was 20 years ago, and I still remember this story, where he told a story about that he tried to pitch himself to do some Warner Brothers Bugs Bunny stuff because his kids love those characters. And uh, he was basically told by some editor no, we're not going to waste you on these books. War, you know, uh, Warner Brothers makes us do them because the, we own they own the characters. We don't really want to do them. And it was a kind of like he was sort of saying, yeah, we have to, but we really, we really don't prefer to do these comics. Did you ever get any sense of that working for them, that these were sort of like the redheaded stepchild of the DC publishing line?
0: Well, okay. So actually let me, I'm going to respond to a different part of your question before I answer that part. But um, I love Kyle. And Kyle actually also worked in production at Marvel the same time that I was doing Marvel Age and all that stuff. Um, and um, I hadn't seen him for years. You know, there was a gap of uh, must have been at least 10 years I hadn't seen him. And I ran into him at, at something or other. And, you know, and at that point, I think he was, in, he was either in the middle of doing his Plastic Man series or he had just finished it. And I was doing like Cartoon Network stuff and all that. And he said, you write the only comics I read. (laughs) And I said, what? (laughs) Because, you know, nobody read the comics that I wrote. And certainly, you know, nobody at the stature that Kyle was at by that point would be and he said no because i don't really read comics except with my kids and you write all the stuff my kids read there you go, there you go. <laughs> so yeah um so all right so what was it like um it varied depending on which which comics we're talking about i mean some of the cartoon network stuff i really enjoyed i really enjoyed doing things like courage the cowardly dog and uh the adventures of uh, grim billy and mandy there were other cartoon network things that I wasn't so enthused by, but you know, it was work. Um, but once I got to do Looney Tunes, (laughs) um, you know, my, my wife still reminds me periodically about the day that I got the go ahead to do my first Bugs Bunny story. Mm -hmm. Um, and Bugs Bunny was always my favorite cartoon character. Um, you know, so that was just so cool. Um, so, you know, redheaded stepchild. Yeah. You know, I, I, you know, it was never the stuff that sold well. It was never the stuff that was top of mind for anybody at DC, but Oh my God, it was so much fun to be doing that stuff. Um, oh, that's,
1: good. that's, you know, and, <laughs> that's and, good.
0: And the nice thing about flying under the radar is you could do all kinds of junk, you know, that nobody was paying attention to. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it was fine. <laughs>
1: that leads perfectly into something else I want to ask you about, because obviously, uh, you know, having to come up, I mean, writing is hard no matter what, no matter what the context is for the most part. And, but I looking at your, a lot of your credits for these, for those books, it's like you had to crank out so many more premises than anyone else really would have to, because all of the stories in these comics are short stories. And in fact, one issue of Looney Tunes, number one twenty. You have 16 story credits in a single uh, issue. I mean, yeah, I'm sure some of them are one page, two page, but nevertheless, that is 16 whole concepts, which is yeah. way harder than writing one 30 page story.
0: Yeah. So I'll tell you about that issue. That was my fault. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so when I was a kid, um, And I was buying mostly superhero comics, and my sister was buying mostly Archie's, but we were reading each other's stuff. And I always really loved the Archie joke book series, which was all one-page gag strips. Right, right. And so when I was doing Looney Tunes, I said to the editor, hey, how about if we did an issue like that? You know, just like all one-page gag strips. And it got approved. And then I sat down to write it. And I realized the error of my ways. <laughs>
1: Why did I do this?
0: Because it meant that instead of coming up with like, you know, even when I did a theme issue, it would be, you know, three stories and a couple of filler pages or something like that. But instead of having to come up with three ideas, I now had to come up with 20 different ideas <laughs> for this one issue. <laughs> And I I had to make sure that, you know, I had some slapstick pages. I had some pun pages. You know, so it wouldn't just all feel like the same thing. Um, So I'm actually – I'm very proud of that issue, and it's a lot of fun. But, oh, I would never make that mistake again.
1: (laughs) Oh, to be writing Hellblazer again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Exactly. I have to get this issue because I'm just I was when I was looked you up on again Mike's music world I couldn't believe it that I saw that there were 16 credits in a single issue I
0: was just right so so yeah I mean the thing the thing that sort of um, you know I can't complain about was a little unfortunate so that issue I think came out in November and because it was coming up on Christmas season they got a lot of advertising uh, and more than they usually would. So they wound up making it um, like a giant-sized issue, uh, and they put in a couple of old stories that they had that they reprinted in the back, which was fine, you know, and you can't complain about getting more more stuff for the same price, but it then completely just sort of diminished the idea of having an entire issue that was all one-page stories. <laughs> so what are you going to do? <laughs> but it is a fun issue.
1: That's, that's just amazing. So, all right, let me, t- I want to ask you about another series very near and dear to my heart, which is the DC Super Friends series. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to ask you how that came about, because back when I started the Aquaman Shrine blog in 2006, uh, Aquaman and current DC continuity was dead. They was, he was killed off in the sort of Atlantis series. And it was part of the impetus for me starting the blog in the first place, which indirectly led to, all of this, I mean, I wouldn't be doing a podcast if I hadn't started the Shrine, because it's how we met Shag, and it started all, you know, it just snowballed from there. But DC Super Friends was the only, for many years, the only comic book DC published that had Aquaman in it. And yeah. the, the only one, certainly, with, as I like to think of it, classic Aquaman. Orange shirt, green yeah. pants, you know, not a, no bad attitude. So, I mean, how did all, that book was so, aside from the quality of the book itself... Just that it existed and that I got classic Aquaman every month was so beloved to me. So how did all that, uh, how did that series come about?
0: So if I remember correctly, um, and of course I have a mind like a sieve, but (laughs) if I remember correctly, I think the genesis of it before I got involved with it, um, I'm pretty sure it was Jan Jones who uh, was on the editorial staff at that time. I don't remember exactly what her title was, but it was something higher up editorial she had convinced Dan DiDio that they needed to be doing some comics for younger kids. Yes. Um, and so that's, you know, that's what brought that about. That's what brought tiny Titans about um, and probably some other stuff. Um, and so Rachel Gluckstern was assigned to be the editor uh, of super friends and Rachel um, had, you know, and I have been working together for, A few years already at that point, because she had been Joan Hilty's assistant editor, and then she took over as editor on on a bunch of the kids stuff. And just before then, because timing is everything, um, I had written an issue of the Justice League Unlimited comic for her. Right. Um, So we had a good track record. She'd seen me do Justice League characters. And so, um, she got down and, you know, and, and of course, cause again, my background children's television workshop, developmental psychologist, you know, you're doing a, a comic for young kids, you know, whatever. Um, so, uh, she got down to, um, put me on the book. Now, my assumption when I first came on, was it because, um, the whole reason for the book, I know the whole reason for the book was really to get young kids hooked on comics. But I thought that the reason for the book was because it was a toy tie in, um, to the super friends toys. Right. And that they were going to want me to put in a lot of the stuff from the toy line and all of that. But, uh, when we met with Dan, um, you know, to, to, discuss the series before getting rolling, he told me, you know, flat out, do not do any of that. Um, That's not what this is about. You know, this is we're trying to do a comic for young kids. Uh We want every issue to have some kind of pro-social thing in it. Um, You know, and of course, there wasn't going to be any hitting or anything like that. So we had a whole lot of, you know, lassoing and super <laughs> right. breath and things of that sort. Um, which kind of forced me to be a little more creative with it, which is actually pretty good. Um, and then we were off and running really. Um, and because it was really, you know, with a lot of my kids stuff, um, you know, you take something like Batman, Brave and Bold or Scooby team up or something like that. Those I wrote really very much on two different levels simultaneously so that it would be good for kids, but also that adults would get a kick out of it. Um, Super friends. I really wrote for young kids. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so it had sort of the Mr. Rogers syndrome to it in that kids loved super friends. They adored super friends. When super friends got canceled, there was some blogger who put up a blog post that whose title was Dan Didio just made my five-year-old cry, (laughs) (laughs) and it was this heart-wrenching blog post about um, you know about the kid being so upset because Super Friends was canceled. So I wound up um, actually sending the kid uh, some you know a a message in the Super Friends secret code, uh, which apparently cheered him up. But but kids love that book, but adults, for the most part. Um, were less enthused by it but if they didn't get what it was, the adults who did get it, the adults who realized that what I was really doing was I was doing Silver Age Justice League,
1: yeah, and just that's not
0: taking the stuff seriously and having fun with it, they enjoyed it, but there were a lot of adults who didn't get it, <laughs> um and so you know, I feel sorry for them in in their drab, colorless lives but we, <laughs> I don't know why you forced them to buy it,
1: Charlie. It seems kind of mean. <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> I don't understand that. So, all right. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Scooby Doo Team Up, and that's the other thing I wanted to ask you about because that is a majorly beloved title across the Fine Water Podcast Network. We did a whole show about it. Uh, Shag and I did some of our favorite issues of that book. I mean, it is literally to me the you know the Scooby Doo Team Up show if it was mixed in with the DC Universe, and it is. I mean, that is just – I couldn't believe it when it was coming out that that DC was putting out this book with this level of obscure characters, and you got the word. So how did that come about?
0: Yeah. So, well, first I'll say, yes, uh, thank you for doing an entire podcast about your favorite (laughs) Scooby-Tinos. I did actually send a link to it to the rest of the old Super Friends – Scooby-Doo Team-Up team, team, rather – uh, saying, I know you're not expecting that anybody's actually going to do a half hour or whatever it was hour podcast about Scooby Team Up a year <laughs> after the book's canceled, but here, check it out. <laughs>
1: Knowing <laughs> us, it was an hour. Yeah. And,
0: yeah. And, and so, and everybody was really very pleasantly surprised.
1: Oh, it. that's great. Oh, thank you for doing um, that. That's wonderful.
0: Yeah. But, um, so how it happened, um, I, I got a call from, um, from Christy Quinn, who was the editor for most of the run. She was the editor at the beginning. There was a brief shadowy period in the middle where she went off to bigger and better things but then couldn't stay away and came back. Um, so Christy uh, asked me if I would want to pitch ideas for a Batman Scooby-Doo one-shot um, because, you know, everybody's favorite episode of the new Scooby-Doo movies is the <laughs> Batman scooby team <laughs> yes. Um, you know, and so they wanted to do a one shot and I said, great, you know, and so as I usually do, what I did was I wrote up pitches for like, I don't know, maybe four or five different story ideas. Um, and because I didn't know which Batman they wanted to use, um, you know, wrote different kinds of stories with different kinds of Batman, um, and gave it to her so that they could pick the one that they liked. And apparently, when they saw all the ideas, they realized that they could do more than a one-shot, and so then it became a mini-series. It was going to be a Batman Scooby-Doo mini-series. Um, I think it was maybe four issues. Yeah, four, I, maybe four issues, maybe six issues. I forget. Um, and I said great, <laughs> because when somebody offers you several more issues in your planning of, of work, you you know, you're smart enough not to say no. Um, and so I got to work on that. And while I was writing the first one, uh, Christy called and said, you know, people have been thinking and realized we could expand this out beyond just Batman. Yes. And, you know, and we could do, we could do more, you know, like all the DC heroes and stuff. So now it's an ongoing series. Um, but, uh, you know, we don't have all the rights issues worked out yet. So for the first few issues, let's keep it Batman because we have those rights in place. And by the time we get through those issues, we'll get all the paperwork worked out and then we can have other characters. So, again, not being an idiot, I said, great. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, you know. Again, trying to trying to figure out how to make each issue something different. So the first issue, we had just Batman and Robin. The second issue, we really focused on Ace the Bat, Hound, and Scooby. The second and the third issue, we we had Batmite. Um, and then by the fourth issue, they had worked all that out, and that's when we started going with it. But that series was just so much fun. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed that because I got to do... Stories with so many characters that I never thought anybody would ever let me write.
1: You worked the 70s Starman into a story, for Pete's sake.
0: <laughs> I did. I did indeed. And he is far from the most obscure character in that.
1: Well, the part of the reason that we did that episode is because I just wanted another excuse to talk about Ultra the Multi-Alien, who is one of my favorite yeah. characters that has only made a handful of appearances, but he's there he is. He's in Scooby-Doo T-Monk. Oh, so. believe
0: me. A, anytime I have the chance to use Ultra the Multi-Alien, I'm going to take it around.
1: Oh, my a music. Uh, just, uh, <laughs> just, just kiss, shall we? So did you ever have to explain to Dario Bruziella, who, who drew the book, like who these characters were. I mean, cause I mean, I uh, imagine he was much younger.
0: No, uh, Darius, oh, Dario. I don't know exactly how old Dario is. He's, he's younger than I am, but, um, he's also, I have to just say, Dario is one of the sweetest, nicest guys you'd ever want to meet. He, he lives in Argentina. So we only ever see each other. Um, maybe once a year when he comes up for the New York comic con. Um, and of course this year he didn't, but. um, Uh great guy. And we've done so much stuff together. I mean, we did Super Friends together, we did Scooby Team Up together. He did one of the issues of Batman Brave and the Bold. We did a bunch of the Cartoon Network stuff together and Looney Tunes and whatever. Um so we've worked together a lot. Um and I you know, and I love working with them. At the same time, whether I'm working with Dario or with anybody, um I would never be sadistic enough. To give them all of these, you know, obscure characters, you know, God, like, you know, Warlock the Wizard, you know, and, and whatever, <laughs> and expect them to have to go find out what these guys look like. So <clears throat> pretty much every script I write, um, with rare exception, you know, maybe not when I'm doing action or something like that, um, I'll put art reference in the back of the script. Um,
1: Oh, great. Okay.
0: (laughs) Because it only seems fair that, you know, if I'm going to make people draw this stuff, the least I can do is show them what they look like.
1: Right. (laughs) Yeah, there's that one picture from the Starman comic from the first issue special here. There he is. That's what I imagine sending the ultra, the multi. That's just so much fun. I just love the character so much. So (laughs) now you mentioned the uh, Brave and the Bold. You did the the comic book version of that, which is, of course, you know, the the tie into the TV series. I'm always curious about people that write team up books on a regular basis about how it works, because did you get to pick? the guest star in any given month or did you, did you collaborate with the editor or did the editor say we want to do Wonder Woman this month or how did that
0: work? Uh, All of the above. Yes. Okay. Um, So with Brave and Bold and also with Scooby team up, um, I did get to choose the characters, um, but (laughs) with Brave and Bold particularly. So Brave and Bold was actually the second Brave and Bold series. There was a Batman Brave and Bold comic series that ran for, I don't know, 20 ish issues, something like that. And then there was the all new Batman Brave and Bold. Um, And I had written a few issues of the first series and, um, and then I wrote all of the second series. When, uh, (laughs) when I was given the assignment to write the second series, um, I was told in, you know, uh, very explicit fashion because I think they had read my, my stories from the first series where I did things like I had a, two or three page um, hold open in one of them where Batman goes back to the 60s and teams up with um, Super Hip and Brother Power the Geek uh, (laughs) before having the Flash team up. That was most of the comic. So I was told in no uncertain terms that I had to use A-list characters. (laughs) So I had Superman in the first issue and Captain Marvel in the second and uh, Flash in the third and Wonder Woman in the fourth. And and it wasn't until we got further into the series that um, I realized that I could get away with at that point using the more obscure characters if they were not the only guest star. And there was a bigger name guest star in the book too. Gotcha. And okay. So um, Scooby team up. Nobody told me that, um, but I did have to now because it was Scooby team up. All the guest stars had to be approved by both DC and Warner Brothers. Um, <laughs> so we, we basically got into a rhythm after a while where, you know, for six issues at a shot. Um, I would submit a list of characters that I wanted to use for team ups in the next six issues, and then it would go in for approval. And most of them got approved. Um, some of them did not, which was kind of a pity in some cases. Who, did, um, do you, who didn't get approved? Oh, well, let's see. Um, for some re- for reasons I've never understood, I could never get approval, um, to do the new gods or the forever people. <laughs> um, so I did, but, but what I did manage to do shortly before the end of the series, you know, cause I tried, I tried two or three times uh, with them. Uh, cause I just thought, you know, Scooby and apocalypse. that would be great. Um, and, and after the last time that they said, no, I said to Christy, well, do you think we could do Mr. Miracle? And she said, huh we might be able to get away with that. And so we did a Mr. Miracle issue in Apocalypse. But I never got to do New Gods of Forever, people. Um, uh, I got turned down for the Justice Society for a while. It wasn't toward the end of the, toward, until toward the end of the series that um, they gave me the approval. I'm not sure what changed, but thank God it did, because I always wanted to write the Justice Society.
1: Yeah, that's kind of baffling. Um, what, what's wrong with yeah, the Justice I Society?
0: <laughs> I don't know why it was, but for whatever reason. Huh. And, then, and then there was the issue there was the issue that would have been a real challenge to write, but would have been so cool. Um, And it was an idea that came up pretty early on, not for me, actually. Um, Because in the very early days when we were thinking, you know, we could go beyond the DC universe too, and the paperwork wasn't in place yet. So it wasn't really clear who we could use and who we couldn't. So there was some discussion about doing a Scooby Looney Tunes issue, but, when I started really trying to think about what the story would be, I realized the styles were just too different and I just couldn't figure out how to make it work. So I never pursued that one. But the other one, the other one was Scooby spy versus spy. Hmm. Because Warner brothers owned mad. Sure. And that would have been really hard to write because the spy versus spy characters don't talk. Right. right, right. <laughs> um, but I came up with a way around that. And I came up with a way around that that would be that like in the spy versus spy strip, they would just talk in pictures. Um and that would be fine because they're from another country, you know. Um and so I actually did do a pitch for a story. Um but the mad people didn't like it, so oh. uh oh. so it never happened. Hmm. But would have been really hard to write, but would have been really cool.
1: I wonder what that would have looked like because I don't think I've ever seen Spy versus Spy in any other format other than drawn by Prohias or Prohias. You know, like I, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Like I mean, obviously, it would have been drawn in the Scooby Doo style. I can't imagine what that would have right. looked like.
0: Wow. So in 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 the Neo Mad of you know the last incarnation of Mad, it, it was they actually had new Spy versus Spy stuff drawn by I think Peter Cooper, but right, yes, uh, yes, yes. He, yes. But, but, but the, the Antonio Projia stuff was the stuff that I always really loved. Um, and, you know, knowing Dario, one part of Dario's genius on Scooby Team Up was that he could take characters from all these different universes and make them look like they belong together. Yes, yes. Um, and, you know, I, I take my hat off to him on that. And so I'm sure that Dario would have found a way to do it. Um, but... Alas, we'll never know.
1: (laughs) All right. Wow. Before we get off your your team-up books, I do want to say that you wrote uh, Batman Brave and the Bold number eight, which is the Batman-Aquaman issue, the Under the Mm -hmm. Sea, which is one of my favorite Aquaman stories because I loved that take on the character. I loved them turning him into this kind of – you know, Brian Blessed from Flash Gordon kind of character. And so I liked it that he finally appeared in the comic. And that, that story is with uh, Black Man is a lot of fun. So that's one of my personal favorites. Oh, Aquaman stories, you. period. Not, just, yeah, not yeah. just Batman, the Batman, Brave and the Bull, but like Aquaman in comics.
0: Wow. Wow. And, and actually, you know, you're Aquaman. So that's pretty impressive. Thank you. Well,
1: yeah. That's, yeah. That's
0: no, I, I, that was a lot of, that one was a lot of fun. Um, yeah. I, I enjoyed that one.
1: So, okay, I have a couple of things I want to ask you before we wrap up, but I, I do need to get to uh, some questions submitted by the other Fire & Water Network members because I told them that I was going to be talking to you, and as I mentioned, everyone loves Scooby-Doo Team Up. So a couple of the guys uh, had some questions for you. I'm going to ask you these now because they're related to what we were just talking about. So first up is the question from uh, my erstwhile co-host, Shag, and he says, what was Shali's favorite guest team-up characters that he got to play with?
0: Oh, oh god there's too many to list um i don't know I, I i couldn't tell you which were the favorites but i mean there were so many characters that i never dreamed in my life i would ever get to write um i i wrote penelope Pitstop. stop i wrote you know the inferior five i i wrote the great gazoo for god's sake. um <laughs> You know, and all of this was all stuff that I just loved when I was a kid, both the comic stuff and and the cartoon stuff. And so, you know, to have the chance to just play in that sandbox was just wonderful.
1: All right. So uh, Max Romero, he asks, uh, was there any character that, Charlie, you had so much fun writing that you wished you could have done as like a solo series? Or some, you know, was there any character that you were like, <laughs> boy, I'd love to do a ton
0: more of that? Wow, again, how much time do you have? Um, (laughs) The Forever People! (laughs) I would love, I'm still waiting to write the, you know, there are so many characters that I would love to write that I still haven't had the chance to. Mm. Um, You know, I, I would love to write The Shadow, I would love to write The Spirit, Um, you know, There's a big piece of me that would really love to write Sugar and Spike, except that I know I would never do it as well as Sholly.
1: Oh, Charlie!
0: You know.
1: <laughs> it's just like you're saying all my favorite things. It's another one of my I, favorite characters,
0: Sugar and Spike. You know, there, there, there's so many. Captain Marvel, Plastic Man. I mean, there are just so many that I would love to write. And, I, you know, much as I, I can't imagine anybody's going to hand them to me anytime soon, I've had so many experiences to the contrary mm-hmm. <laughs> that I, you know, I'm not, I'm not discounting anything as possibly happening I, at some point. Well,
1: you've, you've written stories for Bugs Bunny, Jonah Hex and Pinhead, I would say that you could, who <laughs> <you> knows <laughs> what's going to be handed to you at some point, Charlie. I mean, yeah. On.
0: And, you know, actually, I could probably even come up with a team up of them, but uh, <laughs> yeah.
1: Sugar and Spike and Ultra the Multi Alien. I would buy 20 copies of every issue of that, of that yeah. series. So, and then finally, the, the last question is from Chris Franklin. And he says, what is Charlie's favorite version of the Scooby Doo
0: TV series?
1: Oh, so that's an
0: interesting question. Um, partly because, um, because, because I'm a Sabbath observer and I don't watch TV on Saturdays, I never got to watch Scooby-Doo on Saturday mornings when I was a kid. Hmm. Um, and it wasn't until years later when it was in syndication that, that I finally actually got to watch it on TV. So until then, you know, I, I, the only way I was experiencing Scooby-Doo was in scooby-doo comic books or the scooby-doo Viewmaster slides or stuff like that <laughs> and you know and, and so i came to it at a different point but um and as a result you know the nostalgia thing works differently for me for scooby-doo than it does for for most people who grew up with it um but i mean favorite series i would say probably needs to be the original and, and the new scooby-doo movies um particularly if they're teaming up with somebody bizarre like you know Don Knotts or the Mama one, like, Cass Knotts or whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, although I did I did really like um the scooby doo Mystery Incorporated series a few years ago where it was you know kind of snarky and self-aware. Uh, mm-hmm. that one was actually a lot of fun. Um but I will I will tell you one one last story so that we'll finish off on. Um uh about my experience of scooby doo Um So when I first started writing Scooby-Doo, the regular Scooby-Doo, my niece at that point was probably about seven or eight years old, something like that. Um, And it instantly eclipsed everything else I'd ever done in my life in her eyes. Um, And I was talking to the editor, Joan Hilty, and I was telling her about this, and she said, yeah, you know, a lot of people who work on the book say that and I don't really know why. And I say, Yeah, I don't know either. You know, and when I recounted that conversation to my niece, you know, a week or two later, my niece looked up at me and she said, Well, does she realize that it's Scooby Doo? <laughs> and that is the power of Scooby Doo. <laughs> uh, yeah.
1: Is the reason why they're eternally you know, fifty how many cartoon characters from fifty years ago are still Around.
0: Exactly. So, exactly. Yeah. And there's that and I just saw that there's a new movie coming out this
1: year. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. So um yeah. so what are your what are do you have some of like personal favorite stories that you've written? You've mentioned a few here, but do you have some that, uh, oh. that people don't necessarily know about that you just think, oh yeah, that one I really, yeah. really nailed it.
0: Yeah, so many actually that I really like. they're they're, they're also the really embarrassing ones that we wanna talk about. But um oh let's see. Um so I mean there, there are the ones that, that are sort of the obvious ones from based on what we were talking about. There's a lot of issues of like Scooby Team Up. There's like the Bizarro issue of Super Friends. There's an issue of Teen Titans Go where I did pastiches of all of the different cartoon shows, including the one from the sixties that I grew up on, which was so cool. Um, there's, uh, went for, for the stuff that I do for, you know, ups, Um, those, tend, those favorites tend to be more of the really heavily character-driven stuff. So, um, like my, when I was doing the Action Comics backups with mm-hmm. Grant Morrison uh, during his run. Uh, so, you know, I did a story about Ma and, Ka, Ma and Pa Kent uh, trying to have a baby uh, for years and years to try to show why they were such great parents. And I did a story about Clark's last day in Smallville that I liked a lot. Um, because they were you know they were really just really heavily character pieces oh actually and and way before that back in the 90s um I did a Spider-Man Human Torch Christmas story in a holiday special that I loved um even though you know hardly anybody remembers it although apparently though I learned um that when Dan Slott did his Spider-Man Human Torch miniseries before he, you know, a few years before he took over Spider-Man, that was one of the comics that inspired some of the stuff in his thing, which was really cool. But that that was a story about Spidey and the Torch apparently on, have a tradition that on Christmas Day they meet on top of the uh, Statue of Liberty to exchange <laughs> gifts. Um, and this year, we, you know it just happened to be that in that year in Fantastic Four, the torch had just an awful year, hmm. <laughs> you know, is Reed died. Sue went nuts. Johnny, you know, Johnny thought he had married Alicia, but it turned out to be a scroll. He burned a university to the ground. I mean, it was just a terrible year for him. And so it's just a, a, a conversation between these two friends. Um, That's the whole story.
1: Um, that's uh, for anyone who wants to track it down. That's called "Merry Christmas, Mr. Storm." Uh, yep, and it's from the warm. Spider-Man Holiday Special of 1995.
0: I want to read that now. That sounds yeah, that sounds really it, cool. it was a great story. That also see again. That also had sort of a checkered history to it because I wrote that story actually for Marvel Holiday Special the year before, and and you might see a theme here. The editor left. <laughs>
1: And, I, swear, I swear, if you're an editor and Charlie Fish calls, <laughs> the bell is tolling.
0: Yeah, and and so when when somebody else, you know, took up the, ra- I think Mark Runwell took up Lorraine's and had no idea that the story existed, so it didn't so it didn't show up in the in the special. But it was one of the best things I'd ever written, and so I really didn't want it to die. So um, I had you know I had uh, gotten in touch with Danny Fingeroff to see because he was the Spider-Man editor then see about getting it into the regular book as a backup or something. And he loved the story. But then of course, Danny left Marvel. <laughs> um, and it took, you know, and again, it was one of these things where there were like three or four different editors before I finally managed to get it into a thing. And and it was just me, but this time it was me calling up people and saying, you already own this story. You don't have to pay me a cent. I just yeah, see it just dig pen. it out of the drawer and accomplish <laughs> it. Yeah. Um, yeah, and eventually, eventually, eventually it did, and and we wound up having to do, add a few pages to it, and, and do a wraparound, because by that point, there, it was the whole clone saga, and oh, Spider-Man oh, was a different oh. guy,
1: okay. so we had, you
0: know, but, but it all worked, it all worked out, and, uh everybody's happy in the end.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Fantastic. So, all right, well, we're going to, we're going to end. I could talk to you, you know, all night, Charlie, but we know we have to kind of wrap it up here and we're going to wrap it up with the sort of thing that they kind of inspired this episode in the first place, which was you have a new gig, which is very exciting. So why don't you tell everybody yeah. about what your new gig is?
0: So, yes, it is. It's actually really cool. Um, Although I, I apologize in advance that nobody can take advantage of it anymore, <laughs> um, so I am going to be starting in a couple of weeks uh, teaching an online class uh, for the Kubert School uh, mm. in comics writing. I'm uh, familiar with that school? Yeah, which which just goes to show what happens when a friend of yours buys the school. Um, <laughs> so Anthony Marks uh, um, had had bought the Kubert School. Uh, maybe a year or two ago, something like that. And um, and then there was immediately a pandemic not too long after, which I, I pointed out to him is not your best business model to buy a school and right before a pandemic. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that he's done, which is really, really cool, is he's greatly expanded um, their online stuff. Um and so there are lots of online classes that you can take now at the Kubert school uh without having to be a full-time student there in person. Um and for 6 weeks I'll be teaching about comics writing. And That is you know, really cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun cuz I you know, I never got to go to the Kubert school because I can't draw. Um, so. <laughs> well, some of the people that went there
1: couldn't either, but <laughs> that's another story,
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. myself included. But that's a whole <laughs> separate story. That, yeah. But that's really cool, though, because I mean, I they didn't really have when I was there. They didn't have writing courses. Uh, yeah. That was not something that they they bothered with. And I would have loved that. I would have, you know, I ended up becoming doing a lot of writing. Uh, on my own, so that that would have been great. And to have you do it, it's just fantastic. So that's that is really really cool that you're going to get a chance to do that, and, yeah. and you know people are going to get to learn from you. That's super cool.
0: Yeah. So I'm I'm looking forward to it. It's a lot of fun. So you know, as I say, the the spaces are all filled up now. Um. So that's why I say nobody can really take advantage of it anymore, which is, you know, a shame when when you're plugging it on on a podcast. Well, maybe next year. Um, but yeah, hopefully it won't be the last time that it happens.
1: Absolutely. So, all right. Well, that's again, that's a perfect place to, to wrap it up. Uh, you know, I said, Charlie, this is, I, again, I've been a fan of yours for a long time and you were kind enough to write a story from my book a bunch of years ago. And you, again, you were on Treasury cast relating that story related to uh, Marvel Treasury edition number one. I've always admired you as a writer. And I said, we've been friends for a couple of years and it was just great to get a chance to talk to you long form like this to be able to, to, you know, talk to you about all your, you know, Obviously, we can't talk about all your career, but uh, hit some of the highlights and some of the lowlights, it sounds like, over the years. And so uh, I was just really, really uh, honored that you would do this. So thank you so much for, for coming on and, and doing this. with. Me.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's a lot of fun for me, too.
1: Thanks, everybody, for listening. Go check out some of Sholly Fish's comics. You can go to Mike's Amazing World and just uh, put in Charlie's name and you'll see. The hundreds of credits that he's got of all the various stories he's written over the years. And I'm going to go to eBay and find some of these comics because I really am dying to read some of these stories. Thanks everybody for listening. We will see you next week. And until then, fan the flame and ride the wave. Aquaman and Firestorm fighting crime together.
0: Soak them down or burn them up. No one does it better. Whenever you find trouble,
1: Forge their hair, they stand for truth and justice and see a land in there. Aquaman and Firestorm, they make a super pair. Aquaman and Firestorm. Super friends forever. Yeah.
0: We want the man who did
1: this.